In this week's Leeds Business Podcast, we speak to James Brown, most famous for launching the era-defining lads mag, Loaded. In a wide-ranging discussion, we get to dig deep into his brilliant autobiography, Animal House, and his journey from his headingly-based homemade fanzine to NME, Loaded, GQ, and beyond. He tells us where the inspiration for Loaded came from, how it very nearly didn't even get past the research stage, and how the magazine went from zero to profit in less than three months. And you'll love hearing his football over business, business decision. To make sure you never miss out on every episode of the Leeds Business Podcast, sign up to our priority list at www.leadsbusinesspodcast.com. Everyone that signs up gets a free gift to help their business. So strap yourself in for this one. It's going to be fun. On today's Leeds Business Podcast, we have author, journalist, broadcaster, media entrepreneur, James Brown. Morning, James. Morning, Phil. Nice to speak to you. Good to see you. Good to see you. Now, James is a, a son of Leeds, Thorner, Collingham, Headingley. Um, most of you probably know him as the, uh, the founder of Loaded Magazine, but he started his publishing career way, way back in Leeds, didn't you, James? Tell us, tell us how you got started. Yeah, my first magazine that I created was uh, my own fanzine in the early 80s, you know, self-produced homemade magazine about music. And Leeds had a brilliant, thriving fanzine scene at the time at Leeds, Bradford and the surrounding areas. There were lots of them. There's one in Burnley and Wharfdale called Tongue in Cheek. There's one based out of Leeds called Whippings and Apologies. There was um, Molotov Comics, Knee Deep in Shit, Raising Hell. There were, lo- there were loads of them. So when I first came across these magazines on marches and at gigs and in, in record shops, I thought, oh, I could do one. I mean, I, actually, back then, I hated the, the, the word magazine. It was a fanzine. It almost felt like an Oz them, you know, and it, they were post-punk, um, kind of just really kind of quite flimsy little self-produced magazines. Often they would feature the, the local bands. So people that I would have covered early on would be like bands like the Three Johns and the Sisters of Mercy. Um, and, uh, 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 and that was it really. It became my kind of gateway out into the world. It allowed me to sort of travel all over the country, hitchhiking, staying on promoters and bands floors. And, um, it was great. You know, I used to sell a lot of them in uh, my first issue sold two. And well, I did the first issue with three other guys. Then the second two and three with two, with, with one other guy, Ben and uh but each issue went up a hundred percent in terms of sales and um after a few issues of doing it ourselves on a Ronio Gestetner handheld hand operated printer one of the boys who originally started on it um little Andy he was he, he got on a YTS scheme and asked if they could print it on that so that was that was helpful and um but I would sell them in jumbo records uh um the corner bookshop, which was a political bookshop opposite the Parkinson building, um, uh, you know, by the university and or, uh, just mainly at gigs, you know, uh, at Brannigan's uh, Leeds had a brilliant live music scene then in terms of bringing people in John Keenan had the fan club uh, and John had bought all the bands that were, that everybody that mattered had come in through the punk era. And then there was a poet in, in, in Bradford called Nick Topchek. We used to bring in a lot of kind of hardcore bands. So there were a lot of different – I mean, obviously, I'd end up usually harassing the same people at the, at the different gigs to try and 
by the, the fanzine, but but it was well supported in Leeds, yeah. Fantastic. You just dropped you just dropped a, a few Fantastic. names from uh, from my long and distant past. I remember going to the fan club at Brannigan's. I think I saw I think I saw Spiz there, I saw UK subs there, I think I saw the Cockney Rejects there one night. Um so that was that was your gateway into publishing. I mean, uh, you know, go on. Yeah, go on, carry on. Sorry, I was going to say what that it was, was your was gateway. You... Yeah, go on. No, no, you carry on. <laughs> I was, I was saying that was your that was your gateway into publishing, and and sort of in the end, your your way out of Leeds, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, there was what I wanted to do when I was leaving school was I wanted to write for a music paper called the NME. That was the only job I could perceive having. I found I would like to have been a footballer, but I knew when I was sort of ten that I wasn't become a professional footballer. And I left school in nineteen eighty three, eighty four, around that time, Christmas of eighty three, eighty four, and. Um, there were just no jobs then. There were mass unemployment. When I told the careers officers that I wanted to work as a music writer, they suggested I become a, a printer. Um, but I didn't know anyone who had a job who was older than me. I didn't know anyone who'd left school in the years before me had left. So that made it very difficult, you know, when you were, was signing on an adult, it was really demoralizing. So this doing my own little magazine was the only, you know, the only kind of productive thing that I was able to do. And it was just inconceivable that in those days that you could have a career in the media in Leeds because, you know, obviously we're talking pre-digital times. Um, and um, I'm just letting the police fly by. The And it was, you know, even the music media, you know, there was a little column in the in the Yorkshire Evening Post and, then, and that was about it. Uh, so everything that, well, any bands that wanted attention had to look nationally, you know, and 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 the, and the same for me, you know. I wanted, I knew that there were one. I went and lived in London, in Manchester for a year and a half because I had a girlfriend there. But also, there were bigger bands there. There were in Leeds, there were bands emerging like the Age of Chance and the and the Wedding Present and the March Violets and uh, Cassandra Complex, bands like that. But there were in Manchester. There was like a Fall and New Order, and a Mick Hucknall had just emerged as Simply Red, and the Bodines and uh, Happy Mondays, and there, there was a bigger scene. It was a you know at that point it felt like a bigger city, and so I lived there for a year and a half. And I and during that time I started writing for Sounds Magazine in London, uh, and that was the way in really. You know I used to I used to send my fanzines to John Peel and to the Enemy and to Sounds. And uh, I, I used to send letters into the enemy, kind of haranguing them. Basically, you're not trying to get their attention to get them to give me to give me work. Um, and uh, and that that was the route forward, really. You know, just starting off going down to gigs at the Poly or, or or the Uni or the Brannigans, like I said, and harassing people to buy the magazine, the fanzine, and then getting a chance to do some live reviews, uh, and then eventually moving to London and and been asked to write features you know i was quite good at it i was quite good at spotting the bands that were going to go places and i wasn't a bad writer i mean a lot of my writing didn't make any sense whatsoever it was just ranting on really but i think the enthusiasm and the ambition and uh 
you know, it's quite easy. It's sort of very black and white when there was so little employment. You know, there was either you were going to accept it or you weren't going to accept it, and I wasn't going to accept it. Um, so that that was that really. I, I mean, literally, my only appointment every fortnight was to go down behind the Marcus of Granby at the bottom of the of, of the um, bottom of bottom of the hedgerow was where the where you used to sign on and it was so depressing i'd get 28 pounds for a fortnight and I, I didn't want to i didn't i didn't even actually want any money from the government you know I'd, i wanted a job and i wanted to do things um you know i wanted to have a purpose and as, as most people do i mean now this the default setting seems to be to go university but i i knew i wouldn't be able to concentrate i knew what i wanted to do when i found enemy and then smash hits as well the early smash hits was just like a colourful, glossy, smaller version of the anime. This world seems to be like the world the teachers were telling me not to be a part of. You know, uh, when you open up those music papers, they were full of passion and enthusiasm and noise and swearing and humour uh, and information about these bands that I loved. And, and I just felt I had such a tight focus on what, because I, I thought that was genuinely the only thing I could do, you know. I mean, I had a mate who had who, whose dad had a greengrocer's when I, I lived in Kirkstall when I was in my later teens, and I used to go and see him in the greengrocer's, and we'd just hang out, you know, and every now and then he'd sell an old lady some apples or something, and and it was just, you know, I, I mean, I quite like just going and hanging out in his greengrocer's, but it wasn't that much to do, you know. That would that would be a highlight today, so. To be able to go home and sit down and write my articles out by hand, or or, or sending letters to the to the DJs at Radio One in the night, asking like Peel and and uh, and um, Janice Long and people like that, asking them to give it a plug. That 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 really was the motivation. It was just do not accept the little that was on offer. Where do you, where do you think that motivation came from? Where did that motivation come where, from? Did you ask me where? Yeah, yeah. Where Where do you think that came um, from in you? I mean, when I was, I mean, I can remember when I was very young, walking on the on the cliffs, walking the dog with my dad in Filey, you know, and him explaining his his perception of the world about the political state of the world, and um, and I guess that you know the idea that. There are people who have things and don't help others and just keep it to themselves, which we're in a very clearly defined example of that state at the moment. When you look at the way friends of the government help themselves to, to the uh, PPE budget. Um, and I, I guess it was just that. And then I was very, I was a very political kid. You know, I read, I used to, used to watch a lot of World in Action and Panorama. I used to read as much as I could about politics. And, um, so I just felt like I was at the wrong end of not the wrong end. I was I was at the end of the stick that was, you know, is well. What am I trying to say? I just was aware of where I was, and that nobody was going to give me anything on my plate, basically. Uh, and it was sharp. And then I think if you go back to those days, you know, you had Mrs. Thatcher on one side and Arthur Scargill on the other, and. When you see footage of my, uh, of policemen from London battening miners, and actually 
you know, the miners weren't trying to cause civil insurrection. They were trying to keep their jobs. You know, so that sort of image of, of the Battle of Orgreave and like, you know, going down with my dad to the, to the picket lines and just seeing this, I think that really stuck on, you know, I remember, I remember being in a service station coming back with a band with, from a gig somewhere on the M1 with the three Johns and seeing about maybe 50 to 60 police vans coming past from the South going to the North. And I think that's the key point is that for me, those people were just trying to work. They weren't trying to cause a revolution or anything. They weren't trying to rob the rich. They weren't, you know, they weren't criminals. So that, that was a very stark confirmation of, 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 you know, the political outlook that my dad had kind of explained he felt was the case to me. Um, so that was it really. Um, and also being a bit hyper, you know, being a bit, uh, I was curious. And I think if you, a lot of you, good newspaper editors and good magazine editors, you'll often find are really curious, you know, even when they get to the top. Of, of of that chain, you'll still you'll still see that they're coming up with story ideas, or they'll notice trends, or they'll notice business mergers, or whatever. They, they'll 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 have an eye for a story themselves, and I I think just naturally, my girlfriend laughs if there's a sign. You know, if you're walking down the street and there's planning permission or just a, a sign or something, she laughs. I always go and read them. You know, I'm just interested in things, and um. So that I think it was just a mixture of that sort of stuff, and you know all those different things. Yeah, yeah. You, you've mentioned you know you got to sounds, and then I think in the book you say you got the only job you ever wanted was the features editor at, at NME. How did how did that come about, and how did that feel when you got there? Well, I'd written to the NME asking for a job, and they didn't write back. And then about a few months later, a mate of mine from a fanzine in Essex called Everything Counts, uh, his writing name was Ron Rom. And Ronnie rang me up and said, the new editor of Sounds wants you to come and work for us to write stories for us. So I went down and met this guy, and it was the bloke I'd written to at the NME, the former deputy editor, and he pulled my letter out. He said, I'm sorry I didn't reply to you earlier, but I knew I was getting this new job, and I figured you could do more for me here than at the NME. Do you want to write features? I mean, I was just hoping to get a regular gig doing concert reviews, you know, gig reviews. So that was a real shock, and it was really exciting. I had a couple of friends in London um, who had fanzines or people who were in bands. So I had places that I could stay. I mean, but usually, like, I remember I went to Lawnswood School. I remember, like, me and a mate of mine, Ian Emberton, we took two days off school to hitchhike to London to go and see gigs to go and see the Serious Drinking and the Higsons. And then we stayed in Serious Drinking's flat in Whitechapel, which was a squat. This is one of my mates were still probably revising for their mock A-levels or something. And um, so I'd had a relationship with people down there that I could stay with. So when that opportunity came for sounds, I just snapped it up. And I was still, I was living in Manchester at the time. So there were loads of bands to write about. And then I got a girlfriend in London and came down and stayed with her. And I just got on a real roll, I think because of the big fanzine scene, the underground scene, in the same way as I was developing and progressing as a writer, they started to develop and progress as bands. You know, they would get their first indie record out and then they might get a deal on a bigger indie label and then maybe even on a major label. 
John Peel would play the records. They'd eventually get articles in the enemy and sounds and so on. And um, so I knew most of these emerging bands. You know, they were people I'd been stood in a working men's club watching in Hull or in a gay disco in Manchester watching or whatever, you know, in the, the different sort of places that kind of alternative bands had to play from when they were starting out. So there was this emergence of a, of a new wave of British bands. So people like The Farm, The Age of Chance, Gay Bikers, The Wedding Present, um, Chumbawamba, another band from Leeds, so Pulp later, there, there, there were just these bands that came through from that underground scene and started making it and started getting record deals. So that was that. And I wrote, um, I think I wrote five or six cover stories in six or seven consecutive weeks. And that was uh, a doorstep, the Beastie Boys. When I heard they were flying in, I paid, spent all the money I had, which was 80 quid to go and find them at a TV music festival in in Switzerland, I got an exclusive with them. I got an exclusive with Joe Strummer just by picking when the phone up and answering. Nobody ever picked the phones up when they were ringing at sounds. And it was a publicist for a film that he was in. And nobody wanted to interview Joe then because, you know, the clash had finished and he was a little bit out on his own. So we did a great interview. And then, if, like I say, a few of the younger bands, Age of Chance, Popular Itself, Gay Bikers, and then there was another band that I discovered from them sending me a white label, which were called the Jams, Justified Ancients of Moo Moo. And they went on to become the KLF. So I just had a tremendous amount of momentum. And the editor, Tony, had really given me a great space to write. And I rewarded him by going and joining the, the market lead of Enemy. But he said to me he'd come from the Enemy and he knew its appeal. I just got tapped up, you know, just two different – a writer and a senior editor came to me and said, they want to give you a job. And the enemy was struggling a bit at the time. It didn't have a very strong editor. So I went over there and um, about two months after I arrived, maybe even just a month, they appointed a new editor, a guy called Alan Lewis, who'd launched Kerrang! and he'd built sounds up. In fact, he started sounds and he'd launched the first British black music magazine. And he was a great editor. And within a year, he made me features editor. I was only 22, you know I mean? Literally, when I first went there, the only job I'd had before was working in HMV in Leeds for a Saturday, every Saturday. And before that, paper rounds and milk rounds before school. So I had no inter-office HR skills or anything at all. I didn't have a clue how I was supposed to behave, which was eventful at times. And um, that was it, really. I mean, it's a very strange thing if you're 21 and you're approached and about becoming the, given the only job you could possibly want. I mean, it, you know, I'm, as you know, I'm a big football fan and I sometimes see when people go on about footballers who are 21 spending too much money or getting into fights or whatever. I mean, I felt a little bit like that. You know, I was like a young kid. I had an office in Oxford Street, I had an expense account. I could go to America or Paris or Amsterdam or Edinburgh, wherever I wanted with the best bands of the day. And it, it's a kind of a, a very, very heady atmosphere and opportunity to have. As, a, as I mean, I didn't even shave then. I mean, I don't shave now, but I, the result is I get a beard. But back then, I, mean, I started winning awards that first year at the NME. I won my first publishing award. I didn't even have a shirt, never mind a suit or a tie. You know, I, I had to borrow stuff off my girlfriend's big brother, who was about a foot taller than me. So I remember folding up his, <laughs> you know, his, he, wasn't, 
get those, um, you know, those cuffs with cufflinks and uh, trying to wrap them all up and then get a jacket to go and pick up this prize. And um, it was a brilliant time. It was 1987 to 992, my time on the NME. And obviously not long after I joined, Ecstasy emerged. The NME covered a lot of the acid house scene from the off. And then sort of following on from that, there was the, how Ecstasy and Acid House influenced the sort of indie bands. So, you know, how bands like the Mondays and the Roses became a lot more uh, kind of dance orientated. And, you know, it was just, and even bands that had been around, like I mentioned before, in the early 80s, like the farm in Liverpool, um, started to become much more accessible. You know, the Ecstasy and, and, and Acid House get made, got everybody dancing and previously been jumping up and down to kind of post-punk bands and, um, you know, and it, it just changed everything, you know, it changed so many people's lives. And I was lucky enough to like have a job where writing about that meant you had to go to all the events, the gigs, the festivals, the raves. Um, it was just brilliant. It was the, you know, later when I had loaded, that was hugely successful, but I'd already had one absolutely brilliant, best possible job you could have in life. You know, um, so I was very, very lucky, you know, and it, of course it lends itself to lots of great memories from my book, Animal House. Um, you know, it was good. Yeah. It was great. Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. James has just, James has just plugged his book, Animal House, which those who are watching on video can see here. Animal House by James Brown, music magazines and mayhem. Definitely recommend you buy this. It is absolutely brilliant. Um, I read it in two days, and I felt I'd been on a forty-eight-hour bender with James, having read it. <laughs> but just you know, going back, you know, going back people to people tell you that. You know, when people say that to you, oh, oh, brilliant! I read it in two days. Only in one sitting, I read it in like. What they don't realise it took me seven years to write. You know, it's kind of like I've got a, I've got a mate from who I've only just got to know uh, uh, a guy from Beverly called John. John uh, John Pearson and he's um, he was a first male supermodel and he said he was stringing it out he didn't want it to end which that was very flattering because I feel like that myself with good books that I really like I start pacing them out at the end because uh, if I don't want them to end but it, is it, almost, it it's almost like it years to write it took so long to write don't waste it all in two days take your time take your time over it um, so well, in the book again. Oh, there you go. There's another plug as well. You can buy the audio book as well. Do you actually um, do you read it, or is it have you got a reader to do it on the audio book? Do, do I what? Are you? Are oh yeah, you no, I read. I read it. I was going to do it, that? and then they said there's a couple of grand. In it. <laughs> how's it was great how's fun, that? you know. I did it with a young. I, I did it with a young engineer called James Nicholson, who was one of, he went to the Brit school, you know, the, the place at Adele and people like that came out of, and he was brilliant. He was multi-talented. He was only, he was so young, he'd never heard of the clash, you know, and uh, it was more of a soul guy, but it was, we had really good fun. And he was just um, the bits, there's bits where I start laughing because I'd written some of the bits, seriously written them seven years before. Like some of the bits, like the bit when the awards ceremony, when I make the staff take acid. I wrote that a long time ago. And then and then the bit about being in South America at the big festival where 
where uh, there's George Michael and Banana Ram and Guns N' Roses and Prince and the likes. And uh, being there were Happy Mondays in Brazil. I wrote that a long time. I wrote that probably 2010 or something like that. And then, so some of it, so when I read the book out loud into the, into the microphone over a period of about four and a half days, it was the first time I'd read it. So I'd, I'd obviously read it as it was going along over and over again, but I'd never, I didn't write it A to Z. You know, I didn't write it chronologically. I wrote different bits at different times and I had different aspects that I wanted to keep in and different bits that I took out because I didn't think they were good enough. There were some really big, good bits of writing that I've taken out for a second book because there just wasn't enough space to get everything in. And I think when The Guardian... They did a big sort of six-page feature in the magazine on me, and they said, you know, it's a pity sometimes you touches on stories and you don't get more. You want more of them. So some of them I'm going to revisit at length. Um, and it was really good fun doing it. And, the, and there's bits when I'm laughing, reading these things that I wrote so long before, how stupid some of the stuff I got up to at Loaded was and how funny it was. It was like reading about a different person's life, you know, because I'm – 57 year old sober dad now you know <laughs> goes to primary school to pick his son up I'm, I'm not roaring around over the you know the nazca lines in peru off my face in a light aircraft or whatever we might have been doing on any given weekday on uh, loaded and um i really enjoyed it i really enjoyed working with james we had such a good laugh in this little uh room and we were just locked in this tiny recording studio for a week there was there was one bit where one of the really cool women from Doctor Who was in the next studio. That was quite exciting. Uh, <laughs> and I kind of like, kind of, I don't know her name, but I'd watched her through the, uh, you know, with my little boy watching, Doc, my little boy's watching Doctor Who. So I got quite excited about that. But beyond that, and, and when I was laughing at these bits, I realized that, that it might be quite funny to leave them in. Because, you know, if you ever go and see, an actor or comedian, and they kind of start breaking down a bit. It often makes you laugh, you know. If they were, and so I'd said to James, put a note in for the producer or the editor to leave these in. And it was great. It became the thing that people on social media were saying, oh, I love the bit when you laugh or whatever. And, uh, and that hadn't been the intention. It just amused me whilst I was sort of back in my loaded editor, playful headspace. So that was a great right. experience. I mean, I didn't get to do it on the pre on the previous book, um, but um, yes, yeah, it was good. You know, I had a lot of people saying that they'd read the they'd read the book and then bought the audio or listened to the audio book and then could I could they buy a signed copy off me? So I didn't expect that, but that that was that was good fun as well. You know, the idea of selling it twice on different formats. Excellent, excellent. So there you go. There's a plug. Buy the book. Then listen to the audio. And James, you'll sign people's books if they want, won't they? Because I've got a signed copy. Yeah, if you want one, I'm on at James James Brown on Instagram and Twitter. Just message me, and it's. Uh, but that one came out of rough trade, and, and Waterstones weren't fulfilling the advanced orders in time for people to get them. I don't know why. Did they had an operate? Both of them had operational problems, so I just told people cancel their orders and get one direct for me, and I give them a personal inscription because I didn't want the Twitter to be full of negative mo, you know, people being annoyed. Sure. So it's nothing to do with me. If rough trade can't get their orders fulfilled. Um, and then it just picked up and I just started telling, say, look, if anyone else wants one, I sold about 400 like that, which was good. 
So yeah. I had to be keep a- just going yeah. to the post office. It was very similar to when I did my fanzine, which was not a thing about that I liked, you know. Fantastic. There will be a link in the show notes below to James's uh, Twitter account so you can get a signed copy. And and in the book, I, it was interesting when you read when I read about the the end of your time at IPC. That I felt that came across yeah. as you you were you were a bit bitter about that, weren't you? That they weren't re- rewarding you for the when you left IPC, you left NME. Um, it, I felt it came across. You felt well, a bit yeah, bitter that they weren't. No, I was. Yeah, when I was, I was, I was really annoyed. But you know what? I made a decision. But I wanted the book to be really, like you said, I really wanted it to be fast and upbeat and positive. I could have written another book moaning about people, but, you, you know, I've had a great life. I've had an absolutely brilliant life, and I've been very lucky with, with, with the opportunities that I've found or created for myself, and I don't really have anything to moan about, you know. So I just yeah. um, I felt that, that they should have given me a chance to 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 um, – apply to be the editor of my time after five years at NME and they just appointed somebody else without interviewing anyone else. So I was annoyed about that because I really, I've been instrumental in helping the editor and working with the rest of the team because it was a very talented team to, to, to put a significant sales increase. But, you know, the benefit for me was working with Alan Lewis was I was able to just learn how to build sales on a, on a magazine, you know, when I, when he arrived, and I'd arrived a month earlier, we were selling at 72,000 copies. And four and a half years later, when I left, we were selling 125,000 copies a week. And for the previous four years, I've been choosing all the covers. So, um, you know, uh, and choosing all the main features content. So um, it was an education, really. It was, you know, it, it made me glad again that I didn't, you know, as my mates had gone to university, were leaving university, I was sitting in, you know, in the house, leds, you know, in the Hyatt house in, in Los Angeles, you know, where Led Zeppelin used to stay interviewing the cult. So I was glad that I hadn't gone down that further educational route. You know, I was pleased that I'd, that I'd gone the way I went. And I think anybody, when later when I started doing business talks, and um, particularly if I was talking at a college or something like that, or or, or to a, a, an audience where there were young people, that they would often ask me, "How? Do, what do you think the one thing that set you apart was?" And it was because I knew what I wanted to do, and I think that was that gave me the focus. And uh, and I think having having that focus and that drive early on meant there wasn't any confusion at an age when you're not sure how to get anywhere or not sure exactly what you wanted to do. I mean, just having so little, some of these college courses you see now look fantastic, you know, things that I would love to have done, but, you know, being where I was really sharpened me up to when I got a chance to have the job. Yeah. Yeah. And, but obviously quite obviously this, the silver lining of, of not getting the editor's job at NME was it gave you the opportunity. Yeah to launch what you say again in the book is having had the best job ever, I got an even better job, which was loaded. And and I thought it was fascinating that you said you, you put a business plan together, had 250 words on it to create loaded. It wasn't a business plan. It was a, it was um, a description of what the magazine would be. But basically a year after I left NME, they ran me back up and said, can you come back? 
we'd like to interview you to be editor because the guy who'd given it to you hadn't lasted. And I, I was like, no. And then my mum had died a few months before. And I remember saying her saying to me years before, I think you'll be the editor by the time you're 25. And I was 26 when she died. And I thought, actually, you know what? If she was still alive, she'd be telling me to go and do the interview. So I went and did it. And then they didn't give me it again. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that was like, so, but in that process, Alan had been the editor at NME, said before, said, would you like your own magazine? And I said, yes, definitely. And I said it would be like Arena magazine edited by Hunter Thompson. So Arena was a small, more fashion and style orientated men's magazine, but it would have some articles in that I liked. But it never had any football or or didn't it, it wasn't really aware of the wider sort of particularly working class cultures that you know that we were all part of. You know, you wouldn't you'd never see Sean Ryder in Arena or or, or Gaza or or, or um, you know you know somebody like that or, or or you know one of the great DJs Paul Oakenwald or somebody. Um, so that was the idea, just to create a magazine for men. That, that was full of kind of excitement and uh, just the chaos, really, of being a young young guy and at a time when music was exploding, clubbing had been – this was 93 when this – I think 92 or – yeah, 93, I think, when this conversation took place. And, um, you know, it would – we just – at the end of my time at NME, I'd started writing about young – comedians like Vic Meads and Jack D very early on in their careers, giving them their first interviews. And so I knew that there was this massive, there was a huge clubbing scene still. There was a big emerging comedy scene that was, that was, you know, there was some, so many brilliant comics back then. And as well as that, of course, there was Damien Hurst from Leeds and lots of other new artists emerging who had that same sort of playfulness in their work. Uh, as as many of us had come out of the post-punk and then acid house eras of the 80s um, had, had enjoyed. So there was no magazine that was just covering all of this stuff. And also, if you go back to like the mid-90s, it was the emergence of, I don't know if it was because oil prices fell or something, but suddenly you could fly to Thailand really cheaply. So people were starting to go to places like India and Thailand and Morocco and coming back and say, there's these hippies having rave scenes. You know, there were, it was just a time when the world really opened up and became a lot easier to get around. The internet had started. I remember the first time somebody explained an email to me and thinking, how the hell is that going to work? You know, so, <laughs> but all of this was fermenting at the same, you know, the same time this was all happening. And and so to be able to launch a magazine at the, at the you know, at exactly that point when magazines at that point were still the most important kind of uh, medium for getting new information, um, it was, you know, right place, right time, wrong attitude. <laughs> no, right. <laughs> totally the right attitude. Totally the right. And the, th and the weird thing as well is you said in the book um, that it didn't research very well. You had, to, you had to doctor the figures to get IPC to oh. say yes. Yeah, I mean, that's um, – I only found out about that years later. We had to go through this process of, as, as, as many businesses do, particularly in retail when they're selling things. Um, we went into small research houses. I, I can't remember if we did one in Leeds. We definitely went to Oldham. I think we did – I think we might have gone to Leeds – 
Leeds, Oldham, did about four places. And what they do is, I don't know if anyone watching has ever been recruited for sort of market research, but basically they would go, they were going to uh, news agents and looking for people buying magazines like the NME or, I mean, they couldn't find anybody who was buying Arena or Esquire, but, you know, a motorbike magazine or a music magazine, specialist magazines. And you get this weird cross-section of a guy who reads Kerrang and a guy who reads Motorcycle News and a guy who reads sort of a football magazine. And they just couldn't get their heads around the idea of, of a magazine that would have lots of, diff- you know, football and music was my two basic pillars. And then after that, clubbing and drinking and drugs and travel and humour and the idea of, uh, and it that... But then again, the, the people that they pulled in weren't early adopters. They weren't curious people who were looking for new things. They were people who were quite set in their appreciations of their own niche hobbies. Or, I mean, they, they were big hobbies, but it was their one passion. Um, and so Alan changed the results. Luckily, it was all still tight, and he just got the tip out. <laughs> and he, you know, where, where you know... Are you likely to buy this magazine if it come in at forty four percent? He put it up to eighty eight percent. So, you know, because the people who were putting the money up for the magazine, who owned it, and me, IPC, they were very big. They were called the Ministry of Magazines. They were a very uh, staid company. You know, they had titles like Women's Realm and Cajun Aviary Bird and, and and things like that. You know, they weren't a particularly racy, hot, young entrepreneurial company. Um, so they were very dependent on things like research to make decisions, but thank God Alan cheated. So, so the magazine that the magazine that created a whole genre may never have happened had he not done that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and also, by the way, not created a genre in the UK. Lodi created a, a genre of mass market men's lifestyle magazines for the whole world. You know, the biggest, one of one of the copycats people may remember from England when it was number three bestseller was Maxim. Well, in America, a guy called Felix Dennis, who I later went into business with, he, he, he Maxim became the number one bestselling magazine in America. Not in men's sector, not in lifestyle, every single magazine. It was the biggest selling magazine. And, you know, I would have to go to places like the States, Australia, I've been asked to do work in Scandinavia, in in Russia, and you know all over the places, explaining what we were doing with the magazines and what the impact had been, and and telling the story about how this this title emerged. I mean, for years after I did loaded, I did a lot of business talks about it, you know, and shared stages with David Cameron, uh, billing with uh, you know Bishop, Bishop was Archbishop Tutu. I mean, really strange. Al Gore, I was on the bill with Al Gore. I mean, so there were lots of different places. Terry Waite, really strange, unusual business talks all over the all over the country. And just telling that story because I think, you know, um, you know, it's if you invent something new, nobody can take that away from you. You know, you you invent something, and then if it influences other things, I mean, and the I mean, the other thing was so much of what we did in. In, in the magazine, influence over mediums, you know. So, you know, the first, when they started TFI Friday, they rang up and said, can we have every single loaded? And there were things like, um, 
you know, they think it's all over, that would describe themselves as a cross between question and sport unloaded. And it was just, it was, it was at that point in the mid 90s, it was the most frequently referenced um, launch influence on, on, on new media. And uh, it was hot, you know. I, mean, I found my wife's diary when I was going through boxes to research the book. And in my mind, there were a lot of key things happened over a period of the first year. And actually, looking back, it all happened in about two, maybe even a month. You know, I was getting our first articles in, in other papers and newspapers coming and then people coming from America to interview me for things like Newsweek and Vanity Fair. And it was all very, very fast. It, the, it was supposed to make its first pound of profit after three years. And it made its first pound of profit after three issues. So 90 days into the project, it was into profit. Um, so from a business perspective, it, it, it was absolutely new, new product into a new market, virgin snow, you know, and it was, um, it, yeah, I mean, it just, it went from being like about 120 pages thick to 300 and 80 pages thick within about maybe 18 months, became market leader in the men's sector because men's magazines did exist before, but they were things like GQ, Esquire, which were both American imports and an arena, which I mentioned, and they were all about fashion advertising, you know, they, they were all about man being at his best. Uh, and Loaded was really about man having his most fun, you know, and it was also very early on somebody in the, Ad Bible campaign, after we'd done about five issues, every week they had an important person in the ad industry picking something that they loved. And um, I can't remember who it was. I couldn't find it when I looked at it, but one of the big ad guys came in and said, I love Loaded Magazine because it tells me how I am rather than how I should be. You know, and and, and that was – that. Was, that, and, and even for women, you know, we get we used to get we used to get masses and masses of letters before you could get emails sent in, um, and we get masses and masses of letters, and often they'd be from women who were saying, "Please, can I have my boyfriend back?" You know, he just sits up in bed laughing and reading your magazine. And uh, I can remember one guy I knew in Leeds, Drew, telling me that his wife was getting so annoyed with him because. Eventually, she sat up and said, okay, let me read it as well. Because that was about an article where they sent about five or six of us went to try and live on a desert island for a week on the west coast of Scotland. Um, it, was, it was an easily identifiable person, you know. I think the same as, you know, when comedians become really big, part of the reason we like them is because they say things that you recognize yourself, but no one's ever, like, articulated. And, and I think... You know, that rowdy young guy, um, whether they, you know, who was into sport and music and, and, and whatever, TV and film, it was very familiar. Yeah. It was the boyfriends or the, or the colleagues or the, or the brothers or the sons, the husbands, the mates of lots of women out there, you know. And um, we, we always, we've loaded, we try to make, it clear that we felt we were on a level with the readers, you know, because those magazines like The Face and Blitz, they kind of used to make out they were better than the readers, I thought, that, you know, they were in exclusive, cool, tiny little clubs that other people, cliques, couldn't access. And um, I never felt like that. And I think, you know, we never covered one type of music. We didn't think 
I wouldn't let them any of the staff use the word style magazine. Uh, and also that idea of things that were cool. So, you know, later Ozzy Osbourne became massive again because of his TV show. Uh, but at the Loaded Era, he wasn't particularly like hot. He'd still get his big heavy metal crowd. But his Black Sabbath days have ended. His early solo days have ended. But I knew he would make a great story. And that that was so we would go and interview something about Ozzy Osbourne next to a feature with something like Sean Ryder talking about his new band, Black Grape. Or, or maybe interviewing some cool DJs like Fabio and Groove Rider. You know, you'd find a, a real mixture of passions. And, you know, and I think, you know, we would look for stories. I remember I used to look at the little stories. They're called Nibs. News in Brief is what Nib stands for. Uh, just at the bottom of the sports sections. And if you, if you, I remember looking and seeing that Sheffield had a really good ice hockey team. I think they were called the Sheffield Steelers or something like that. Just straight away, I thought about that film Slapshot, and we sent a writer off to see what that world was like. And I mean, the best example of that was one of the guys had worked with the NME before Loaded, the first issue came out. He called me, and my deputy was a mate of his, and, and he, re- he rang us and he said, There's this young black golfer at school in America who's doing really well. You should interview him for your new magazine. So we, we got hold of him, and it, of course, the, at that point, he was at school, Tiger Woods. And the first time I spoke to him, he was getting ready to go to school. And then the deputy team and the photographer, Derek, went over and interviewed him. And that might have been Tiger Woods's, well, it would certainly be his first British interview. Um, so that curiosity that I talked about early on, um, that desire to have more than what was on offer, we didn't at the start of Loaded take loads of PR things because nobody wanted to deal with us because nobody thought it would be a success. The publishing perception of the industry thought that men would never read magazines en masse like women did with things like Elle and Marie Claire and uh, and Cosmopolitan and, and, and so on. But I just thought that we would. I just didn't see why if you put an interview with Gary Speed next to a big interview with you know, Quentin Tarantino next to a a piece about going out of a night in Stoke. I, I didn't, I just, these was, were the things I loved. And, you know, if you went to watch Leeds play Manchester United, there were 40,000 people there loving it. And if you went for your night out at Shelley's in Stoke, there'd be like a thousand people going bonkers in, you know, at a rave there. And, you know, and if you, if you went to see Reservoir Dogs, which was another kind of talent that was emerging to, Tarantino, you'd find all these people incredibly um, excited about this new filmmaker. And, and, and so that, it just seemed obvious to me, really, that if you could yeah. put all of these passions together into one place. And I think as well, I should say, it was done very well. You know, we, I had brilliant sub-editors, and I always put that across that we could work really, really hard and it'll be good fun because of the subjects we were we were writing about and reading about and editing. And um, it was never, ever a drag going to work at Loaded. It never felt like work. And I think even for the guys who had to read, I mean, I would read every page as the editor, but the sub-editors who were the people that write the headlines and make sure all the spelling's right and everything, you'd think because we were drinking so much, they'd be full of errors. And it, it wasn't. I'd go bonkers if there, was a, if there was a mistake. But the beauty for those guys was they got to read the magazine first. And, you know, the best thing that I would hear in the office 
would be one of the production team laughing because I would go in and they weren't looking at uh, something on a screen. They'd be reading. I mean, they might be reading it on a screen, but they would be laughing out loud at, at you know, maybe the club's editor, Owen, or, or, or one of the writers like Trevor Ward or Martin Deeson or John Wilde writing something funny. Um, and that was also a great, I mean, it was your own little focus group. If somebody walked into my office and said, have you read that? You know, the readers are going to say that to each other. So it's a very unique, exciting, brilliant time. And I, and I hope that that's come across in the book. I think from the way people react to it, saying it's taken them back in time to that period of their lives, it probably has. So that, that would be the reward for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and there's so many, I mean, throughout the whole book, there are so many references that I go, yep, yep, yep. And gigs, yep, I was there. Yep, I remember that. I remember that happening. I remember the magazine. Before we go on, because we, because, yeah, one of the fascinating things that came out of the book was you only edited 36 issues, but we'll, we'll come on to that in one second because I've now got to tell everybody about the Leeds Business Podcast Gentleman's Agreement. So my half of the agreement is every week I bring you inspiring, fascinating and interesting guests like James, totally for free. Your half of the deal, Mr. and Mrs. Listener, is it has three steps. So you share this podcast with just one person who you think will get value from it. Number two, you have to post a review of the show at either Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And number three, you have to give this episode a like. That's all you have to do. Fair deal. James, you think that's a fair deal? Absolutely. It's vital when people are creating podcasts or, or photography or whatever they're putting online, obviously films as well, that, that, it, that if you like it, share it because it's, uh, it, well, it's one, it's, you know, it's good currency for your social media, but it, two, it, it, it will encourage the creators to keep going if more people discover it. There you go. James Brown says you have to like it and share it. So, James, only 36 issues. And I think like with, with yeah. many brilliant things, it's, it's a very bright star and it, and it shines briefly and literally it, it burns out. Would you say that's, that was the case with yourself and Loaded? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I burnt out. And had to leave. I had to leave because I, I just they weren't rewarding us financially. It was simple as that, you know. And I, I'd been taken out for meetings by three major newspaper owners. and been sounded out about whether I'd be interested in editing big supplements or even papers. And I knew that my personal refueling habits at the time wouldn't have allowed me to do that. I had a Channel 4 chat show commission. I was getting offered a lot of things. I was offered jobs in, the, in um, Australia. And I wasn't seeing a great deal of money, you know, because IPC had funded it. Um, so that started to rankle a bit. And also I felt like they'd started to take us for granted. You know, there was a – within three years isn't very long in publishing, but we'd kind of gone through into a second level of – a second team already and uh, – We'd had an awards evening where a lot of my younger, newer staff had won awards and nobody from the company came over and said, hey, well done. No one above me. And I, I think they were just getting a, almost a bit sick of how successful it was. And, um, I mean, they were asking questions about its influence in the House of Commons. 
there were so many things copying it and um yeah, so it was just I just thought, oh fuck, I'll just take the next job that I get offered and that that I can do. Yeah, yeah. And, and the next uh, job and, and, and a really charming guy came and took me out for lunch in Mount Street in Mayfair and um I really liked him. I didn't really want to edit GQ magazine. It wasn't for me. It was the opposite of what Lodi was about. And he just came, but he came back a second time after I was like slow in responding. And um, my friend Hayden Evans, who's a le- another fellow Leeds fan, he said, well, look, if they really want you, just just say you want kind of a, a, a multi-reward deal, you know, which, so I just told them that. And he came back with the most amazing offer. It was like, fees to start a signing on fee um you know every six months the t- the sales going up which i was perfectly capable of doing and which i did achieve every year completed and it was just you know no no limit on my expense it, it, you know, it was whatever car i wanted it was it was like a footballer's deal you know and it was um you know so this would be about the same time Lee Boyer was probably about the same time as me was going to Leeds. And um, it was just very difficult to turn it down. I was living in a small flat in Brick Lane, which wasn't as trendy as it went on to become. It was pretty cool, but it wasn't a really desirable area. And after that, I bought a townhouse in, um, in, in Islington. And it was just, it changed my life. Jonathan Newhouse, who hired me, later helped me deal with my drug and drink problem. And, you know, it was just, he, he basically wanted me to work there more than IPC wanted to work, work there, you know? Yeah. yeah. They made so much money in the first three years that they kind of didn't care. You know, they figured somebody else could come along and do it, but they, and the magazine did roll on and continue to increase sales. I think it went up about another 200,000 copies. I think when I left, it was hitting a third of a million and it went up, but, you know, it kind of later lost market readership and they never really expanded it around the world like Maxim did. And um, it was my magazine. It was as simple as that. They never had another. It's like if you go and see The Stranglers, it's not the same with with, with the guy. It's not the same as Hugh Cornwall being there or, or you know, the specials without um, Terry Hall or Jerry Dammers would be a very different proposition. And I think, um, you know, I think it would just... It was my Mac, you know, and it was yeah. and the team that I'd put together, their personality combined, meant made for a for for a great experience as a magazine. So that yeah. was that, you know. I just went for the cash really. And then again, you know, when I'm in my football WhatsApp groups and people are going, Why is so and so leaving or whatever? And I go, Well, you know, you're twenty four or you're twenty one or whatever the hell you are, and somebody offers to double your wage you kind of think, well, maybe this might not happen again, you know, and it was a very similar, you know, I think it gives me a little bit of insight into just being that young and then and earning a lot of money. Uh, I mean, I was turning huge things down. I mean, Punch offered me like, I can't remember if it was 50 or 100 grand a year just to write a weekly column from on top of it, and I knocked it back, you know, because coming from doing paper rounds, you know, and, and delivering milk around the back of the Arndale Centre in Headingley and, it, it kind of felt like I had enough, you know, the amount, the huge amount of money. I mean, obviously now, wish I'd done it. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, and later, as you get on later in life, and the, the, you know, you kind of, although I've done fine and, I'm, and I am fine, you do think 
God, it took me half an hour after the being. <laughs> could have just done, you know. But yeah, I never, yes, I've yeah. only spent it on bows and raw fish, you know. So, yeah. But but GQ, you you, you know, you referred to it there. GQ allowed you to clean yourself up, and it was interesting that that you said in the book that because you were clean, because you weren't drinking, you had a lot more spare time, which allowed yeah. you to create more stuff, which led into producing the, the Leeds United magazine, Leeds Leeds Leeds. Yeah, that, I mean, that was a – I think I've been very lucky because I've had about five jobs that in other people would have said that would be my best job ever. And I think uh, – I noticed that there was a Leeds mag and it didn't have much energy and it didn't – it got the impression there weren't a lot of people involved in it. But the thing that glared out to me was it was made in Manchester. And I think it had stopped – I think I, I kind of think it had it's come to an end a few months before, and I I saw this and I I rang uh, Hayden up, who was at that point was Simon Grayson and Gary Speed and David Batty's agent, and and I'd got to know him through him giving us access to Gary interview in the magazine, and I got to know Gary and and Hayden pretty well, and um, I rang him up and said, why don't we do a magazine for Leeds, because I know about twelve really good magazine people and writers who would probably work on it. And I don't think it should say made in Manchester. I mean, ironically, it was then made in London. But <laughs> <laughs> um, so he went off to see the new owners who were some guys called Chris Akers was the chief executive and, and, and Jeremy Fenn was a managing director and we went to see those two and they said, yeah, great. You know, that would be brilliant. And they set up a tiny little office. We actually rent sublet an office from some stockbrokers in Regent Street, just in the same terraces as anyone who's been to Hamley's, the toy shop. And at lunchtime from GQ, which was just around the corner, I used to run around and I had about four or five guys in there putting together this, you know, monthly magazine. And we used a lot of the energy and the, uh, you know, the kind of like the structures that we'd had at Loaded. So I always wanted to have um, new players. So we used to do players from the youth system. So the, at that time, there'd be somebody like Gareth Evans or someone like that, you know, just just emerging, Harpal Singh, you know, those kind of younger players. And some of them made it, some of them didn't. Uh, and then we'd have the players of the day. So that would obviously be likes of... Um, Batty or Decor or Alan Smith or Gary Kelly. And then then we'd have the 80s era, because this was the 90s, and with the 80s era, so we'd have an interview with someone like John Sheridan, um, uh, Scott Sellers or someone like that. And, and then we go back to the 70s and then even back to the 60s. So I always made sure that those, within the different decades of my lifetime supporting Leeds would be represented. And we had Eddie Gray, uh, doing um, how to, you know, how to trap a ball on your chest or how to take a ball and turn a man with a young youth player called, called uh, Harry Kuehl. And it was just great, you know. But, but, but what I would say was, again, it was about being in the right time and having the opportunity. I can remember we did Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank on the front cover. This is this is like late 97, uh, early 90. So it was, uh, it was early 98, I think. I think maybe we started... Maybe it came out in start of the season, 98, 99. And um, we did Jimmy on the front cover for the first one. And I forget who was the second one. And I think the third one was Lucas Radebe, who had started to get a place under George Gray. And 
And we honestly didn't know what we would do after that. And my premise, if you launch a magazine, is you should be able to tell you what the first 12 covers are. And then, of course, O'Leary got the job. And the first thing he did was put Stephen McPhail and, and Jonathan Woodgate into the team. And then Kewell was in and out under Graham. And he, he kind of, George Graham wanted to buy Alan Thompson. And we had Bruno Ribeiro. So he made Kewell a, a, a member. Then Boyer, obviously, was there. Young Alan Smith, I think O'Leary gave his debut to. Um, it was brilliant for us, you know. And then, of course, he went on his shopping spree. So it was Michael Dubry, Michael Bridges, uh, Huckabee, and then later, you know, Viduca and, 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 and so on. And Batty came back. So there was just so much to write about. It was such an absolutely brilliant time. And then that, having that little magazine, we... I use the GQ distribution system. We were able to get it in, in, in retail outlets, news agents, and petrol stations and travel points like Leeds, Bradford, and, and obviously the station. So we got it up to sell it about 20, 24,000 copies, which was great. You know, I mean, it was a good, it was a good magazine. Everybody who worked on it and the picture editor and the designer and the sub editor. Uh, obviously, the photographer was a guy we had. We used sometimes use John Varley and Andrew Varley's kind of like club pictures, but we also had a young guy called Justin Slee who was based out of Leeds. And a, a lot of the interviews were done by Dave Simpson, who was who was based up in Leeds. Um, so it was, uh, and then we got a guy called Neil Howson, who was a bloke I'd known from a band, and he went into Leeds to be the publisher. He was somebody I asked the club to employ. So we just had this absolutely brilliant period when the club was doing well. They gave us the money to create a good magazine, and the, and and the fans and the readers really enjoyed it. And to this day, I get if I ever put anything up, I get a lot on social media saying, "Oh, I used to love that magazine. I've still got them." Or I remember that issue. Um, yeah. And and with my contacts, I was, for instance, when when Bremner died. Uh, he wasn't just a Leeds hero, he was obviously a Scottish hero, and I was able to ask Irving Welsh to write a tribute to Billy Bremner so we could get, I could kind of go beyond the immediate fan base uh, uh, through my own kind of contact. So that 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 made it, uh, you know, a, a, a better than typical club magazine. And I think the best tribute we had was the, there was a Manchester United fanzine called United We Stand. And the editor, Andy Mitten, had said, uh, you know, in the magazine, he said, I wish we could have an official club mug like Leeds, Leeds, Leeds. So for yeah. a Man U fanzine to be praising a Leeds publication, that that was great. <laughs> <laughs> you know. There you go. I'd have, gone and done them, I'd have gone and done them one if given us Eric back. In actual fact, later when I started my own magazine company, we got offered them when we still were doing Leeds, Leeds, Leeds. We got offered the Manchester United magazine and we were sitting and, and, and Chris Akers, who I mentioned, and Hayden were directors of my company. And we sat in the room with a couple of non-execs and the finance director and we, we were launched on AIM. So getting the Manchester United magazine would have been a good announcement to make it. probably, you know, been... And they all just looked at me and I just said, there's just no way I can do this. You know, if, if it was Newcastle, it'd be a different story. But it was, um, I just didn't think I could comfortably go back to watching Leeds at home and away producing them. I mean, I suppose probably a better businessman than me 
would have just taken it and set up an own subdivision and not let people know that we were doing it. But um, I do, I and mean, we would have probably made quite a lot of money out of that. But I did make a footballing decision in a business environment. Um, good, good. But call. again, another brilliant yeah. job. Well, you you, you mentioned that because because the Leeds 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 magazine then gave you the the opportunity to create your own publishing company, IFG. I feel good. Um, how did that come about? And and that's obviously your your step from being, you know, an author, a journalist, a broadcaster to actually being a, you know, a CEO, a business owner. How did all that come about? And how did you how did you feel about it? Well, it, it just on that point, first of all, I mean, I'd had a business when I was at school. You know, I did my fanzine, which was profitable every issue, and we put the money from each issue back into the next one. And I'd done everything there. I'd overseen the the, the, the creation of the content, the, the distribution, the design, done the sales, the accounting, and all of that. So sometimes I do wonder what would happen if I back then if I'd found another way to do that in a bigger a bigger level, you know. Uh, rather than go off and join my really enthusiastic, passionate early years working for other people, making money for them. But, um, I mean, I got fired from GQ, basically, and I left GQ. And literally, that was on a Thursday. On Monday, I walked just because of something that had run when I was the editor. And on the Monday, I walked around to Leeds, 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 and I just started there. And then I went to see Hayden and we went to see Chris and then we went to see Felix Dennis and we raised some money. Uh, I had about a quarter of a million quid left over from my time at GQ and um, Felix gave me half a million and Chris got us in with some some, some brokers and we, we launched the company on to AIM, the alternative investment market. And it was incredibly educational period, you know, um, learning about nominated advisors, about the stock market. Um, it was fascinating. I'm, I actually loved it. You know, later we did an acquisition, which I had to go out and raise six and a half million for. And when, when I mean, Jason, the finance director, was just a young guy like me. You know, he was younger than me. He was probably in his late 20s when we were doing this. I was in my early 30s. And um, when he called me and said, we've got the money, it was great. I was walking the dog on the canal in uh, – down the road from here, and it was um, it was great. It was like he said. I said, "How much did they give us?" And we get the full. They said they got the eight million. We only needed six and a half to do the acquisition, but I'd asked for eight. So um, it was brilliant. I mean, I kind of, you know, when people talk about if you've got any regrets, I don't really have many regrets, but I do wish that I'd spent more time doing that raising money. And um, I, 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 I found it brilliant and. It was really exciting doing that, going out and, and presenting and, and, and raising the funds. And so that was it. I had my own publishing company for about five years. And then, then Felix did a kind of a chairman buyout. And uh, that was it. Became a gun for hire after that. You, meant, you mentioned that's where the, the book office. ends. I think. Well, it goes on a little bit from that. But um, you mentioned, I think it was an interview in The Guardian. You said you had some, you had some regrets from when you were at IFG and you made some errors. What? What did you What did you mean by that? What were you alluding to? Well, IFG. Yeah, you said you made some errors. It was in a Guardian article. Yeah, I know when the, the problem, and, and you know, I think people should do this maybe when when they're running business. I know when the when the business when we sold it, Jason and I, the finance director, and I sat down and I just wrote out twenty eight things we should have done differently, 
which is a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I think um, there was a couple of things we were offered, you know, which would have changed my life significantly. Uh, A couple of titles we got a chance to work with early on that, that the business guys in my title, I was doing more of the content. Business guys didn't think there were there were businesses in that became successful. And I think, I don't remember having that many regrets. So I guess just um, maybe just not going out and finding more acquisitions. And I think also not doing, I mean, we did a men's mag as the third project. We launched a film mag, and then we did an acquisition to give us stability. And then after that, we did a men's mag. And, well, you know, when I started about 4 million quid, and by the time I did that, we had about 800 grand, you know, to, to work on it. So obvious, the obvious thing would have been after GQ, just to straight away bring a new men's mag out that when the market was still exploding. Um, and so I get, I guess that, and, um, but I don't remember, I don't remember that really. Maybe, maybe those, they were the things okay. I was talking about. Okay. Um, I'm conscious that we've gone, we've gone on a lot, lot longer. I could carry on for another hour, James. Um, one of the things we ask all the guests on Leeds Business Podcast to do is to do as a, a how-to. So, James, you've got a how-to for us. Take it away. Yeah, you know, I thought, I thought about this, and I actually didn't instinctively think how it wasn't for people with businesses, but people just trying to get a job, you know. I think I've been talking about this with my son. He's 22. He's just left university, and I think – the things that always stand out for me when I'm recruiting a team were people who went above and beyond. You know, you'd get a lot of um, applications for jobs from people who were editing the student magazine or they were the music editor of the student magazine, and it just wasn't enough because, you know what, there were 40 other interviews with Ben Elton that people had sent in, you know, or 40 other interviews with Johnny Marr or something. And and I, and I, I think, you know, I guess if you're a – if you're recruiting somebody, if you can find somebody who does something that illustrates their passion, you know, so at the moment I'm like, can I like go a meeting on Wednesday that might turn into a new business? And I've started to think about the team and I met somebody who's working in retail in that sector. Um, and they, they work for a big company for free doing something else. And they'd be kind of do some reading for somebody else. And I, and I think, you know, going back to when I had IFG, I told the editor of the film magazine, I said, we need a junior, but look look for somebody who does something extra. Uh, and, and he came to me and he said, there's a guy who works in the office at Prince Charles Cinema in Leicester Square. He writes all their, their, their previews and their light, you know, everything for them. I said, he sounds great. You know, he said he works in the ticket office. So he's like, well, he, you know, so it was that sort of thing that, you know, if, you, if you're looking for work at the start of your career, it can't be just the nearest good thing that you've done. You've got to be able to show total commitment and, and initiative in in perhaps areas that where you're not getting paid. You know, I was never getting paid for doing my articles for Leeds of a paper, for instance, which was a local kind of what's on political magazine I used to write for. And then also um, as an employer, just look for those people who are just absolutely obsessive um, to the point where their passions you know, go beyond just the basic work that they've been doing or, or, or if they're coming from the university, the basic um, studies that they were doing. So that that that's that. just about – I mean, I've done a lot of recruitment. I've done 
I've found staff for all sorts of people, from Madonna and Guy Ritchie through to Jamie Oliver, through to numerous global titles, Time Out, uh, Mail on Sunday, all sorts of different people. So I kind of still still get asked by people to help find them, help find the right people and and, and bring them in. And um, so I'm always looking for that different thing in a candidate, you know, always. So, that I mean, that's, that's pretty much a how-to for employers but also employees isn't it because it's easy when you're an employer to go oh well you know he he or she ticks ticks all the basic boxes that'll do and what you're saying is yeah, you remember, somebody... yeah when we had ifg we uh anna who did a great job she was the ad director she came to me and she said i found this guy at so classified ads but i think he's gonna really annoy you i said <laughs> why why and he said oh he's like a really irritating rodney trotter but he's just obsessed with films. He collects, you know, model toys of film characters. He goes on holiday to Tunisia to where the Star Wars set was. And I went, this guy sounds amazing. I don't care if he irritates me. I'll just, I won't come down the office when he's being irritating. But everything in that guy's, he was called Nick Gibbs McNeil. And I think he still works in film, you know, and he, um, I mean, the guy went on holiday to look at the Star Wars sets. It was just sand. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mean he went to the internal sets in a film studio. I was at Pinewood. He went to Tunisia to look at at the sand. And, 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 And that is a really good example of, you know, finding somebody that, I mean, the Steve Lamack would be somebody that music bands will know from uh, Six Music. Well, Steve used to sit opposite me at the NME, and he he also came. You know, Alan came to me and said, oh, this guy's applied for a job. Do you know him? He's got a fancy. And I said, yeah. You know, I know Steve. He's, his fancy was called A Pack of Lies. Steve, when I used to go on holiday at the NME, I wasn't very good at going on holiday. So I'd go to great cities I'd been to, bands like NME, like like New York and uh, or Paris or Los Angeles. I, I didn't really know how to go to the beach back in there. 80s. Steve on his holidays would get in a van and go on tour with a band, which is what we did. <laughs> but but he wouldn't write about it. So he would he would you know there were bands like I mean Steve I can remember him getting the tapes for PJ Harvey and Blur. They were the two bands that, that he he kind of who who made it who he championed. But he would go on holiday with these bands called things like Mega City Four or Senseless Things or. You know, maybe Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine. That was his holiday, getting in a van. And that's why he's still on Six Music, you know, 30 years later, talking about, you know, I bet if you listen to Steve for a month, he'd mention those bands. I put money on that. He was obsessed, you know, which was brilliant, you know. He, he lived the life, you know. Fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um one last question for you then, and we ask all our guests this as well. Give us a shout out for a Leeds business. Well, I don't know the name of, I don't know Craig's surname, but he cut my hair last week. He's running out of Moortown. He used to be out working out at the Outlaws Yacht Club, but my girlfriend thinks he did a better job than uh, than I used to get in the barbers down here, the Turkish barber in London. So if you call me on Twitter and you need a good haircut, um, uh, I'm on a, at James James Brown. I, I'll give you Craig's number. He's in Moortown, and he's got a little setup there in his back, in his in his conservatory. And um, also, I've got a mate who makes conservatories up there. Daz, he's he's in Morley. 
<laughs> I know you probably want me to give you like the name of a design company yeah. or an emerging digital brand or something, but you know, I mean, I, t I can tell you, I mean, they don't need any custom, but I was really impressed that like I was up for a funeral last week. I had to get about six different cabs, you know, amber cars after the second cab. They knew where they were picking me up from, you know, the automated service. And the stayed at the Dakota Hotel, which was amazing. You know, it was a top-level hotel, really uh, just normally, obviously, when I come home, I stay with my dad's in Hare Hills. So because of the funeral, he had a lot of relatives staying. And uh, I said, it's fine, Dad. I'll go and find a hotel. And uh, I spoke to somebody down at the Dakota, and I stayed there, and it was in. It's a great, great hotel. I would happily good. stay there again. <laughs> good, good, sh good shout, good shout on Dakota Hotel, and we'll put the link downstairs. Amber, Amber cars. I use Amber cars; they're very good. Um, one final, final, final question because you used to ask this question in uh, yeah. the my brilliant, my brilliant career section of Loaded was, what would you think of it? What would you think if you met yourself at a party? He's calmed down. There you go. That's what I think. Oh. He's calmed down. He's not like he used to be. Do you know what? I recently, I'm, I'm going to do some work with a digital agency, a big digital agency in, in London to just do some creative work and bring some com some uh, campaigns in and things. And uh, I haven't seen these guys since the loaded years. And they were like, <laughs> I was talking about the difference in what my life was like then and now. And they were like, I could just see in the way they're reacting. <laughs> I was noisy. That's what I did. I did some filming with James May once, and he said to me, "You were so noisy back then, James." So I'm a lot quieter now, a lot calmer. On that Let point, we'll say. On that point, we'll say thank you very much, James Brown. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very so much. Thanks, Phil. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found it both interesting and of use. To make sure you don't miss any future episodes, please subscribe to the show. Go on, do it now. Do it now before you go up and do something else. Much appreciated. Oh, and don't forget our gentleman's agreement. See you next week.